I left a little um, leftover from Thursday night's men's fellowship study in Proverbs. List of how to recognize a wise man as described in Proverbs. A wise man is or does these things. Pretty significant list, isn't it? I don't know that it's exhaustive of Proverbs, but it was our what we came up with in our study over two weeks. So, good stuff, but I'm going to erase it now. There's a lot of work getting these up here, but we want to press on. So we're in Revelation chapter 13. We have used Daniel to give us an interpretive framework uh, a, for the explanation or understanding of these images, just as we use Genesis to give us the framework for the images of chapter 12 um, with Joseph's dream to, to help us understand who we are talking about and what we are referencing. Um, so now we're using Daniel, and the reason we use these is because in those texts, they uh, give the interpretation. And so they tell us what those images mean. The images are identical um, with some variations in uh, extent and, uh, and activity that is developed, but the entity itself is the same. And so we have uh, sought to do that throughout Revelation, uh, using the rest of the Bible to give us interpretive rules that we'll follow. And uh, we have tried to do that as consistently as possible. And we come now to um, the second beast. So remember, we had uh, seven heads. Um, and I want to jump in because somebody asked me a question about the uh, interpretation of the heads in Revelation 17. And I did not address that in the past. So let me do that first so I get it out of the way and make sure I address it. Um, whether or not the person's here, it's their own fault if they're not here to hear that. <laughs> But they were right that I had not really addressed it uh, very much. In chapter nine of chapter seven, uh, in verse nine of chapter seventeen, it says, "Here is the mind which has wisdom, um, which tells us that there's some uh, calculating that needs to be done." Okay, uh, we, we're going to see that in chapter thirteen as well. He was, here is wisdom. Uh, let him calculate the beast, the number of the beast. And so what it's calling us to isn't a further revelation. It's calling us to realize it's something uh, that's multi-leveled. It's something that, that takes a little bit of effort to really uh, get a hold of, get a handle on. And so we are called to be very attentive, essentially pay attention and uh, include all of this, not just don't take one thing and run with it. So here's the mind which has wisdom. So we're given this description. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. We haven't really discussed this because we haven't come to the, to the description of the woman. We haven't really developed that yet. Um, and so I haven't talked about the woman sitting on this beast, um, nor have I talked about seven mountains. Uh, and you might say, well, that's how it starts off. These are seven mountains. And, by the way, what is the historical view of this? The seven mountains equal seven hills um, of one city, and they confine us down to one city, and that city, of course, is Rome. They identify it as Rome, and they correlate this then with the Roman Empire of Daniel, 
And uh, they're looking forward to this revised Roman Empire, revived Roman Empire that we have talked about in the past. Um, the difficulty there is if it's referring to seven literal hills. Oh, and by the way, Rome wasn't the only city that was built on seven hills. So was Athens. So was Corinth. It was a very popular concept that to have seven hills was kind of a lucky thing. And so they often developed communities that incorporated seven hills uh, in the Greek and Roman Empire. And so um, the idea that there are seven hills, and yes, you can go to Rome and there are seven hills, but you can go to Athens too and see them. They're around and circumvent the city. city kind of sits down in them. And of course, one of them is where Paul is at, the Mars Hill. Um, and you have the, the Areopagus on the other one. So you have them. Um, why we choose Rome is because of uh, Daniel. And, uh, but we are told the seven mountains aren't just what the seven heads point to. Uh, so there's something more to this than literal mountains. But the mountains themselves, we are told, you've got to have some wisdom here, the mountains themselves are also a, uh, a symbolism. There's, there's some uh, hidden information there about this. Uh, and so we want to bring it to light. And so this is part of the explanation. They are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And then in verse 10, it starts off with there in the New King James and in most of your King James-based text. Um, there are also seven kings. And uh, my struggle is with the way they translated this instead. And so you'll hear me often read it. These are also seven kings. Um, there's no other seven of anything on the beast to correlate with the kings. So if we say the seven heads are seven mountains, which are literal hills around the city of Rome, then what are these seven kings in the next verse? They have nothing on the beast to correlate with. Okay, because of the crowns, how many crowns are there on the beast? No, that's how many heads, how many crowns? Ten. There's ten crowns. There's seven heads and then one more. Uh, so if the seven mountains are literally interpreted to be seven hills around the city of Rome and help us to identify that city, then who are these seven kings and what part of the beast correlates with them? The fact is there isn't one. They're left dangling and we're like, well, what does that mean? Now we've got two things. The heads stand for two things. Yes, they stand for two things. And the correlation is that these are seven kings or kingdoms that have raised, and we, we have used the imagery of, on our timeline of the nations. Here's a timeline of the nations, which we've used, and we called it the beast, with a capital B and a T-H-E, the beast. Um, and what I've done in the past is I've always used this model. And what is this model? These are the hills. What are they? And if you look on, on many uh, historical charts, they'll actually look like this. What is it showing? It's showing the rise and fall of empires. In most historical charts, if you look at them, um, they might use uh, things, you know, uh, less... Uh, natural lines, but ultimately they talk about the rise and fall of 
empires. And so we know that, for example, um, Babylon fell very quickly to Persia, right? It was a very fast, boom, overnight. Babylon, the Babylonian Empire was now the Persian Empire. Happened overnight. Very quick, dramatic one. Um, but for the Greek, the conversion from Persia to Greece and from Greece to Rome, a little more, uh, less dramatic. Uh, from Assyria to Babylon. And so we have the, the, the transition from empire to empire, but every empire had a pinnacle and then a decline before it was replaced. Even technically Babylon with that very fast transition, um, the pinnacle was gone, right? Who was that? That was Nebuchadnezzar. He had at the pinnacle and his crazy son was just sitting around drinking. He wasn't expanding the empire at all. Um, it was contracting, and he didn't even know it. The party went on for months, and his country was being invaded and taken over by the Persians, and he was in a drunken party. And Daniel shows up and says, you know, the writing on the wall here that God sent you says that um, the kingdom's taken away from you. And that night, it was. Next morning, it was Persia. The Persians came in with the waterways, they blocked it up, they, they blocked the waterway, came underneath the wall where the water used to come, and took over the city without a fight. Bam! And so there was a decline, and each one of these has a doesn't come to power very quickly, mostly, but, uh, and so there's a rise and fall of nations. And I believe that that is what is being portrayed for us by the angel. Have wisdom. These are seven mountains. And the woman has sat on them all. She has been on each one of these. She's always been there. We're going to talk about that when we get to her timeline much more. And so these mountains are actually another representation of the seven kings, which is why I would prefer the text to use, instead of there are also seven kings, these mountains are also seven kings. And some versions will have it that way. Um, so I, I'm not unfounded in that uh, use of the term uh, of changing there to these. Some have it that, that way. Um, and so these seven mountains are seven kings. And kings can represent their kingdoms, particularly when you have a secondary element involved. So by adding the word mountains to kings, we know we're not looking for individuals, but for the kingdoms those kings represent. And so if we were in Egypt, we would have the pharaoh, and we would have the pinnacle pharaoh be who? Who's the pinnacle pharaoh of Egypt? Do you know? The pharaoh of Joseph's day, when he owned the world, right? By the end of the seven years of famine, he owned the world. It says everyone. He owned all the people of his land, all the cattle of the land. He owned People from all over the world came to him for grain. He owned everything. So that Pharaoh, Pharaoh of Joseph's time, um, was the pinnacle. And it started going, well, of course, the Exodus um, was a pretty sharp uh, drop for Egypt. Um, we have the rise of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, we have, uh, I'm sorry, after Egypt. I'm missing one. Yeah, Assyria. Yeah, so Assyria, sorry. I had a brain, brain glitch. So the Assyrians, and uh, we know that pinnacle guy because he uh, was killed by his own children. We have that recorded for us in the God's Word. 
Um, and this is the guy Naaman served. And, and so he was destroyed. We have him. He was stopped at Jerusalem walls um, because he profaned God. Uh, we then pass into the Babylonian Empire and we know exactly what happened there. And so that was Nebuchadnezzar. We know that guy by name. And then we can go into the media Persians and we know the top kings there too, right? They're prophesied for us before they even came to power. Cyrus. Darius. We know these guys by name. We go into the Greek Empire and we are told by Daniel who? Who's the king we're looking for? Alexander the Great. And so he sets a pinnacle. But as soon as he's gone, what happens to the empire? It gets split into force and they fight each other. And it's never quite the same. And when you go into the Roman Empire, who wears the pinnacle? This is a little tricky. The pinnacle, technically, in terms of the power of the empire, was really early on with Caesar Augustus. That, that, those early ones, those early Caesars. They, they kept expanding well after them, and I think some of that's attributed to how Daniel describes them. But we're looking at seven kings, but because of the correlation to the mountains, we're really looking for seven kingdoms who rise and fall. And a rise and fall gives us what? A mountain. So we're looking at the rise and fall of seven empires, and with the criteria that we have used before. And that was that they had, among other things, they had to have um, authority over Israel. Remember that. That, I think, is very important. And in all the junk that went on in our fellowship over my position, that was one thing that a couple of professors in colleges said, that's noteworthy or something we need to add. Um, so we have the capital beast. Okay? Which is, we're going to, we have identified as the nations. Um, representative of all the nations. And we have listed them off. And we ended last week by looking at the seventh head. And that seventh head, remember, was future to John. So we're looking for something future to John. But, not the last. So there's a future empire... Um, between what? Between the Roman Empire and the end. The last empire, which we're going to identify tonight. Which, of course, you guys already know what that is. And so, that's the seventh head. But there's something unique about this head that's different than the other six. The other six, including the one that is, um, gets no real attention. The, the previous six heads rise and fall. And so five have passed, one is, one is yet to come. Um, the, we are told in, in Revelation chapter 17. But back in chapter 13, we're told something strange about this seventh head. And let's go there, because it's going to give us some clues of where to look to identify um, its kind of reincarnation. Almost, I use that word hesitatingly because of the connotations, but um, there, there's, there's a kind of reincarnation here. Um, verse 3 of chapter 13 says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marvel, marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, 
And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast who is able to make war with him? He's given a mouth to speak great things and blasphemies. He's given authority to continue for 42 months. And that is going to trip us up big time because as soon as you see 42 months, what goes through everybody's mind? We, we are at the midpoint of the day of wrath. And so we're in the midpoint of seven years. We're three and a half years in or we have three and a half years to go. And so this is all future. But we have already seen one three and a half year period that didn't fit that model. And that was back in A.D. 66 to 70. And so let's not get tripped up with that too much. But we are going to find that this is an empire that is going to have a weird thing. It's, going to, it's already risen. Future to John. So here's what he sees. He sees an empire who rises. They're at their pinnacle. And then they are cut off. And dramatically, it says that he was killed with a sword, uh, mortally wounded. Uh, and then suddenly he was healed. And in that condition, um, he gives, just picks right up there and gives pinnacle to another empire. Um, but it changes. That's why I changed color on the chart. It changes. It, it, it morphs. And that... that Change is going to take us into the rest of chapter 13. And so something in this manner of which this destruction, this sudden death of this empire that we identified, remember last week, as, great, as the United Kingdom. I use Great Britain, but it's technically the United Kingdom. And that's the, uh, which had global impact uh, had global power, had military, had the, the, the iron of Rome in it. It had the same kind of things we were looking for. What, was, what made Rome powerful? Uh, what kind of government did they have? What kind of infrastructure did they have? What kind of military stratagem did they have? And so we, saw, we can see all of that in the United Kingdom, as well as other nations. Remember, it's not that that's the only nation going. It's that, because remember, it's spread among all the peoples. Okay? Remember, it's a mingling of the Roman iron with the clay of many peoples, many nations. But one rises up above them. Um, particularly, one gets authority over Israel. Now, Israel wasn't in existence. Whoops. Israel wasn't really in existence uh, during this time. Um, and it really comes into existence almost at this point right here. At this point, Israel comes into existence. At this dramatic cut, a dramatic mortal wound that is suffered by the seventh head uh, that did die, but it, it, it reconfigured itself. And so we're going to see it come forth in another form. Well, what is the reconfiguration in... What does it morph into? Uh, is it still a nation like we expect to see? Yes and no. It still has some semblances of national entity, but it's much broader than that. And it encompasses really a different arena than we think of in terms of geopolitical. So far, we've looked at nations as being geopolitical units. And so we can say there's the borders, and there's the, the king, and there's all of this. Well, none of that's going to apply to this new kingdom. And it's so different... This, this resurged seventh head is so different that 
God says, I don't even want you to call it an eighth head right now. I'm going to show you a whole new beast. What we have in the middle here of chapter 13 is this revived, different kind of kingdom being the second beast of Revelation 13. And I'm going to call it, I'm not going to call it the second beast. I'm going to call it little b beast. The beast. Not because it's unimportant, but because it only speaks for itself. Um, This capital B beast involves all the nations. This lowercase b beast is one nation, but it's a whole different kind than we've ever seen before. Um, These were all, again, like I said, geopolitically identifiable. We we, we see a king, we see a mountain, we see all of this, but now we have something strange. And the angel gives us some insight in that back in chapter 17. Kind of flipping back and forth, but it's necessary. And so here's what the angel says. The beast that was and is not is himself, I'm sorry, in verse 11, chapter 17, verse 11 is where I'm at. Um, let's read verse 10. There are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not and is himself also, is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven and is going to perdition. And so this beast is really born out of not just this one head, but all seven heads are just kind of wrapped up. And so this beast is going to encompass a lot of the nations into its influence, at least, if not its direct control. And the manner in which it's going to do that is really going to be given to us much, much later in chapter 13, which we're going to get to probably next week, if not three weeks, because Easter we won't have this. And so this little bee beast is an empire but it's more than just a geopolitical force. We certainly have a geopolitical entity that we want to attach it to. And uh, it's going to have to come out of the United Kingdom and be a representation of it. It's going to have direct connections to it because of this uh, putting the death, our mortal wound, and its healing. Um, But it's also going to take on a financial aspect And we find that really at the end of chapter 13 where it talks about how it's able to control buying and selling uh, and able to uh, uh, just manipulate the world. And, and we see it also in Hosea where it talks about its, uh, it, it, the role of banking in this situation. We're going to be looking at that a little bit. I don't know if I have time tonight. Uh, probably next week we're going to finish that up. We're going to look at the role of banking in this. So we're looking at both a geopolitical entity and a financial entity um, that are woven together into this weird new creature. Can we call it that? This weird new beast. Uh, It's still like this. It's born out of this. It still has a geopolitical element. It still has... There still are borders involved. There are still kings and presidents and pharaohs and, and... prime ministers, people like that, but there's something sinisterly going on behind it as well. And so, to find out this one, we really need to back up into this one, and we really have to back up even farther into Daniel's fourth beast to really get a good list. 
of what are we looking for. And uh, you guys have had me do this before, but uh, for the sake of those who haven't heard that, let's just build this out. I'm going to build a little off square here that's not on our timeline that's going to derive, where we're going to derive this. So we still have all the requirements of the list we made last week, right? We still have to see all the evidence of Rome. We have to see evidence of Rome, the Roman iron. So we're looking for a republican kind of government, a government that's a republic that uh, has the same military capacity, similar military capacity, has similar commitment to infrastructure, um, uh, but is uh, uh, not nearly the strength or the cohesiveness of the Roman Empire. It's kind of fractured and, and kind of weak and, and less significant. We also have still to have, we, we can't abandon this, they must have um, authority with regard to Israel. Okay? And so we have to have some kind of authority or significant relationship or, or uh, uh, something going on with, the, with, with regard to Israel to keep Israel uh, subservient or at least in existence. And so we still have to maintain those and all the things that are involved in those two things that we studied two weeks ago. We now also have that we know that they have a relationship, a direct relationship, direct relationship with what's the last head? With the UK. They have to have a direct... So we're looking really within the context of the United Kingdom's fullest extent. Where, how far did it get? When was it at its peak before it started to decline? When was it a mountaintop? And how far did its kingdom go? Well, what was the famous saying? The sun never sets on the British Empire. Every hemisphere, every time zone, <laughs> almost, um, maybe not in the middle of the Pacific somewhere, but uh, had uh, a, an entity involved in the UK. So that doesn't narrow it down very much, but it does narrow it down to some degree. Um, we also have... Uh, what some information from Daniel. So let's turn now to Daniel. And we're going to look at the Daniel's horns, the vision of the little horn. Um, and that's in Daniel chapter 7. And remember, we're just using these tools to help us do some identification work. Daniel chapter 7, beginning verse 23, um, is telling us about the end times. How do I know that? Because it says that the Ancient of Days is going to come and destroy this. And so it's some manifestation of the fourth beast. And so um, the Ancient of Days is going to come and they're going to be judging um, this empire. Uh, and so let's watch and see what it's all about. By the way... Um, well, let's read the whole thing uh, because you need to w know what he actually saw. Let's uh, back up a little bit and I'll see if I can... Let's back up to verse 9 of chapter 7. I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as... No, I didn't go back far enough. Sorry. Uh, 
Verse 7. After this I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue of its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. All right, ten horns. Well, now we're looking for something, and we're going to find what those horns are. Verse 8. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. And then he sees the Ancient of Days coming, and, uh, and judgment coming. Uh, and again, verse 11, I watched them pump because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn, that is the little one, was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So we are at the end, right? As for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And so he's, he's seen this entity, this last manifestation of this disrupted uh, fractured Roman Empire, and he sees it fractured into ten groups, ten horns. Okay? And so I would contend that those are <laughs> horns. Not hors d'oeuvres, horns. That's an end. He sees ten horns, and I would contend that this is correlating with the ten toes of his vision, of Nebuchadnezzar's vision. There goes down, remember we divided in half and then we had further uh, uh, division, but also while it was dividing in half and then into two feet and then into ten toes, we also had a deterioration of the product. So it wasn't just division, it was two different kinds of, of, of breaking down. It was breaking down by division, it was breaking down by substance, by mixing up the metal with the, with the clay which the angel tells us are the peoples of the earth. So the ten horns would, would likely line with the ten toes. And I would contend that they are the eastern part of the Roman Empire and the western part of the Roman Empire. And so, um, and, and we can sit there and discuss which regions or nations would, would qualify to be in those lists. Um, but I'm not really concerned about the eastern list right now. Um, for a couple of reasons, but uh, it's a little more difficult in our modern age to do it because they are so in turmoil right now, aren't they? It's really hard. The eastern side, once you get east of Rome, the nation seems to change every five years, eight years. There's a lot of time when Yugoslavia and all that area, and even now Turkey and some of those. So that region we're not going to look at. We're going to look at the western region and let's just look at uh, the major players in uh, the western part of the Roman Empire. Let's just pick five. Top five. Let's say top five national entities that we would look at historically that came out of that geopolitical borders of the Roman Empire. No, Germany was not. France was. And I suppose you should have Italy. Okay? Okay. I got that one, the easy one for you. England was Spain. I'm going to put England, which is different than the United Kingdom. Let's grab one more. Oh, just pick one. 
Portugal. So, I don't know that Portugal existed in the Roman period. I'll have to think about that one a little bit. Um, if you want to put Germany in there, there was a Germanic portion. There was a portion of Germany that did get encompassed into the. I, I don't like to use it, but we'll use it because you guys just said it. Okay. You've already covered the main ones that I want, so I only need three. The three I need are on here. All right. France is there, Spain is there, and England is there. Why are those three important to me? Okay, this this 11th horn, I used the wrong colors. I should have used that in, to, court, to agree with this, so I, I reversed them, sorry. So there's one more horn. There's an 11th horn that comes up. And unfortunately, the commentators use the word little. And we think, well, it must be a little dinky country. Um, or a little man, or something. Um, and that's really, uh, it's young, is what it is. It's not little as in small in stature, it's little as in hasn't been around very long. Okay, it's young. A new horn might be a good way of talking about it. There's a brand new horn that's going to come up. And that gets my attention. Now we're looking for something different that's really... Um, it's going to have a place among the ten horns, but it's different, and that difference takes me to this difference. And so I'm starting to correlate these now, and so one, it, it gives us the history of it, right? Here's the history lesson. This horn does what? To create a space for itself. What does it do? Let's find out. Let, let's, let's, um, how is it, it described by Daniel? Okay, let's talk about that phrase. That's, that's actually one Hebrew word, plucked out by the roots. Now, what does that sound like they did? Sounds like they destroyed those nations, that they destroyed three nations out of the Roman Empire. Um, but the phrase is a, is a very important phrase, and it's used in agriculture, and we know what it means. Um, so being plucked out of its roots, it involves the root structure, but here's what it really means. It means that you have removed some of the roots to make room for it. It does not mean that you have destroyed the plant. It means that you have gone into the area where these plants are growing and you have extracted them and tilled up some of the roots so you could put in a new plant there. I've done that in my backyard. I have that big locust tree and its roots go everywhere. When I redid my yard, my the backyard there last year, um, I had to deal with locust roots all over the place. Well, it didn't kill the tree. If you notice, the locust tree is still doing fine. It's like a weed. I, oh, they just don't die very easily. Um, I've cut off some of the roots so I can make room for other plants that I wanted to put in there, and I cut the roots back and uh, cleaned out the areas where I wanted to plant those. The tree's still there, and that's the agricultural term being used by Daniel here is that areas that three of the horns once occupied are going to be taken away from them even while they still survive. So they're not going to be destroyed. They're just going to, part of their kingdoms are going to be taken away to make room for this horn. This horn kind of elbows its way in. Okay? And it's going to say, we're taking this part of your country, we're taking this part of your empire, we're taking this part of your empire to create their own empire. 
And so that's the agricultural term used there by Daniel. And I'm, you know, that's pretty obvious. It's easy. Um, I didn't make that up. That's, you can find that in, in most all the good uh, Hebrew dictionaries. And so we have this description that he has, he has made a place for himself, but he has done that with regard to three other nations. And so we're looking for a new nation that was born out of the ten toes, but is very strongly linked to them and even born out of them. And so we look at our history of the United States and we say, well, we came from England. Well, that's partially correct. That was where it started, was our confrontation with is England, right? But then where did we get more of our territory? This is the, the states, the early states, the colonies, if you will. We got those from England, right? We fought for them. What else did we fight for? We didn't fight for that one. Hang on to that one. What else did we fight for? Yeah, and who do we fight? We fought the Spanish for where you live right now. From California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. Um, we fought the Spaniards off, the Spanish-American War, for a lot, most of that. Um, and then, as John said, the Louisiana Purchase, we just bought France out. <laughs> Napoleon needed money. He was engaged in war with England. We just bought him. We just say, okay, we'll send you this money. Okay. And uh, so we paid Napoleon, uh, funded his war, and we bought the Louisiana Purchase. So this is where the geopolitical aspect of this horn came from. Prophecy says when you see a nation make its way by, by kind of pushing aside three major aspects of this old Roman Empire that's the guy but he's going to be different the little horn is different the young horn is different well how is he different let's look at the interpretation because um, that kind of concerned um, him and so what do we find uh, Daniel says I got I see these two I'm going to jump down to verse 20 okay to get to the interpretation and the ten horns that were on its head the other horn which came up which Three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words whose appearance was greater than its fellows. So this is a nation that's actually bigger than the three it has taken over. This is, a, this is not a little tiny nation. This is a great big nation. This is a nation that in terms of land mass is bigger, in terms of population is bigger than the three from which it was derived and we immediately recognize that, oh yeah, we're bigger than England, and we're bigger than France, and we're bigger than, what was the other one? Spain. We, we, we've taken that, and we made a bigger nation. We are greater in, in appearance than our fellows, the three that we, uh, and even the others, all, of, all ten of them. And so we have this dominant position. But we have this horn described as having two things, which are kind of interesting. One is that it has what? Eyes and pompous words. All right? So we have, uh, th that's what he sees. He sees eyes and a mouth on this horn. 
Um, we also are concerned because verse 21 says that it's going to make war against the saints and prevail against them. We're not told how yet. That's going to be an interpretation to come. Um, but he sees them, it, it sees this horn as being, uh, uh, making war with the saints. So we have those three things. To guide us. Well, we don't know what those three things necessarily mean. So we're going to have God give him an, an uh, explanation. Let's jump into verse 23. The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, which shall devour the whole earth, trample it, break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall rise from this kingdom. So they still are kind of, kind of, sort of connected to that Roman thing. And so we're still looking for that, all the characteristics of that to be evident there, though not as strong. Um, ten horns are ten kings who shall rise from this kingdom. And then it says, and another king shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue, and there's that word again, three kings. He's going to bring them in and take from them. He says, verse 25, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High. All right, so now we find out that pompous words means words against God. Okay? Uh, all right, so the pompous words are against or versus God. I didn't put the verses right there. So that's going to help us. They're going to persecute the saints of the Most High, which is right here at war with the saints. But the word persecute is an interesting one. Now, can Daniel describe violence? In this book, has he described violence? Oh, yes. He has done a really good job of describing violence, hasn't he? Um, he knows words to use to describe violence and war. Uh, breaking, I mean, he has described the violence of the, of the Greek Empire and how he just blasted through everybody and destroyed. He has lots of violent words at his disposal. He doesn't use any of them. He uses a term here in the Hebrew that uh, has to do with garments. And the word there that says that he will persecute the saints of the Most High is literally he will wear out the saints. Is it in your margin? It's in the margin of my Bible, actually, which is kind of cool. Um, it helps me out a lot. <laughs> he will wear you out. And that's a term regarding your garment, not um, some big attack and, and battle, not, not something that you will be able to put your finger on and say, right there it happened, but rather a very gradual process of just deterioration. How your garments, how they, they, you wear them and you wash them and you wear them and you wash them and you wear them and you wash them. And when you get to be to your 53rd birthday and you're still wearing blouses that you got in your 20s, they're pretty thin. My wife does that. She still has some of those. She likes wearing those old sweaters and having all the old patients comment on how, what nice they are. Um, right? She gets more compliments on the old sweaters that she's had since before we were married, maybe. <laughs> some of them, I, I remember seeing her long time. Um, and so, but they wear thin. And that's the word used here. They're going to just, this beast isn't going to attack you. He's going to wear you out. He's just going to gradually 
rub you, gradually thin you down, gradually, gradually, on a microscopic level, just make you less and less and less godly. He's going to simply run you into till you're so thin and paper thin that you can hardly even recognize it as a useful garment. This is the word used. He's going to wear out the saints. That's how he's going to make war. His war is different. Everything about this, this entity is different than what came from before. You're not going to look for the same kind of things. You're not going to expect the same kind of things. And you're not going to be looking for the same kind of of uh, representation in terms of, you're going to include geopolitical, but he's got to be big, bigger than that. And so, what we don't have for us yet are the eyes. Let's keep reading, 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 reading. <coughs> and uh, so, so, he shall, shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. And there's those three and a half years again. So we have now the connection. 42 months. There it is. Not at the front end. Not at its coming to power. But at the very last aspect of its history. The very last representation. It will change its attitude toward the saints. Notice up here. In verse uh, 25, he's wearing them out. But by the end of the verse, what happens? They're going to be given into his hand. There's going to be a dramatic shift. And instead of this process of just wearing them out, he's just going to blatantly just take you over. We're done with you. And this is going to correlate with something coming up. And we're going to see. And so we have all of these things to look for. Oh, the eyes. Very quickly... What does it mean to change times and law? And a lot of people have imagined a lot of things. And they have accused groups that they're going to... When uh, Europe went metric, this passage was used, oh, this is a sign of the times. They've changed times and laws. Um, when uh, the Seventh-day Adventists used this passage for the Roman church when they switched and worship from Saturday to Sunday, that's a violation of this. So they're saying the Roman church is the fulfillment of this. Um, so a lot of people have made interesting ideas of this. The problem is, is they're all putting their own imagination into it. Um, and we don't have to do that because in this very book, someone else has already been attributed with setting up times and laws. Guess who said it and guess who it was communicating? Guess who said it? It's the book of Daniel. It was in, that, in response to Nebuchadnezzar, but Daniel said something about where he was getting his insight from. And um, let's go there in Daniel chapter 2. Let's just back up. Remember, there's no reason to start using your imagination. Go back and do the hard work of finding its original use and bring it forward. So that's what we're going to do. Daniel chapter 2. Verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, and wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. 
He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with Him. I thank You and praise You, O God my Father. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of You, for You have made known to us the King's demand. What does it mean about times and seasons and laws? Which laws and times are we talking about? Well, he talks about the setting up of kings and kingdoms. He talks about the deep and secret things of what's in darkness and in light. Essentially, what he's established, which is done in a lot of places in the Old Testament, is that this is the God who is the creator and sustainer of everything that exists. So when we get to the thing that this guy wants to change times and laws, which times and laws are we talking about? Not your clock and not your calendar. We're talking about creation. This guy is going to attack creation. Not guy. This entity, this horn, is going to attack creation that God didn't create. Those laws don't mean anything. The number one thing that we look for in his use of his eyes is to cast doubt on creation and all the laws that are incumbent because of it. Because once you have a creator God, you have all his laws. They're important. Once you remove creation, you remove a God that you're answerable to. So they have changed the times. So now instead of being 6,000 years old, how old is the earth? Billions. They've figured out that millions isn't enough. <laughs> Hundreds of millions isn't enough anymore. Now they're talking billion, a billion years old, billions of years. They've changed the laws. Natural laws now are being, are, being, are, are being violated. Natural laws are being ignored. The evolution remains a theory because it doesn't hold up weight against laws. We believe things. They are teaching things to our children as science that violate laws of nature that can't be changed. You cannot raise chickens long enough and many enough to make platypuses. You just can't do it. But they want to change all that. And they've changed all those laws. And who are the leading proponents of that, do you suppose? The scientists coming out of the United Kingdom and particularly advocates of it, the little horn. This is what it means that they have, this is their influence. So we're looking at pretty blatant. I mean, this is what we have. Now we're going to talk about pompous words against God next week. We did this when we did our study in Samuel over government. So I already, you already have that information, but I'm going to just very quickly repeat it. So, this is Daniel's help. We, we bring that into this uh, list and we're looking for someone who is um, indirectly um, against God's people. And that is so key, indirectly. They will have fooled even God's people. The God's people aren't even aware it's happening. The denigration is so gradual that they won't even know what's going on. 
So indirectly, he's going to be opposing God's people. Um, he's going to be speaking against God. And how do nations speak? How do empires speak? Any ideas? How does your country speak? Laws, sometimes. Through media, somewhat. A lot of lies. <laughs> they do speak a lot of lies. But how does the government speak? Let's start off at the beginning of a nation. How do you establish its right to speak among other nations? What gives it that right? A declaration, a constitution. We should be looking at their founding documents. It is the founding documents of a nation that set its temple from there on. We're going to be looking at founding documents. That's how nations talk. How does, a na- how does our nation talk to Europe? We talk to them ultimately through treaties. Right? Isn't that how nations talk? We're going to sign this treaty, and we're going to sign this treaty with the Russians. We sign this treaty with NATO. We, we established this economic treaty with Canada and Mexico. Uh, NAFTA, was it? North American Free Trade Agreement. So these are how nations talk to each other. So we're going to look at, is our nation from the beginning speaking against God, even when it looks like it might be for God? And then it's uh, proposing, or no, I'm not going to say proposing, it's advocating an assault on creation. My time is way past. Um, and i got more to do. Now, this is just outside of Revelation 13. This is from Revelation 17. This is from Daniel. Now we're going to go into, we're going to add to this list next week with all the stuff from Revelation 13. Um, we're going to add into here that it's going to, it's, why does it look like a lamb? But it speaks like a dragon. Why does it have two horns? Why does it, um, bring fire down from heaven? Why does it do signs and wonders? Um, and we're going to look at and add to this list all those things in Revelation 13. But first, we've got to derive this stuff and bring it in, too, because this all helps us. Doesn't this help you a lot? For me, this was huge. This was a total affirmation of what I was seeing in Revelation 13, but it, it was almost stronger than what I saw in Revelation 13 for me. And so we have it all correlated for us. We're looking for this new, different, different, different entity that is kind of a nation, but it's also something a little bit different than a nation, a little scarier. Um, and uh, has international implications. Um, and so we're going to be examining that and developing that next week. Okay? I wish I could go faster and ask, let you have more questions and stuff. Um, is any of this just going, you guys are probably all heard it before, except for maybe Justin, I think. This all new to you, huh? Yeah. Okay. Very good. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word. And we thank you for its precision. And that we don't need to trust our own um, imaginations we can trust your word and that we can see it very plainly 
there before us if we'll simply look. And then look up and uh, see around us its, uh, its fruition, it coming to be. And uh, Lord, again, that we might have the